Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 36 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, History of the Birth and Childhood of Jesus. Chapter 4, Birth and Earliest Events of the Life of Jesus. Section 36, The Purely Mythical Explanation of the Narrative Concerning the Magi and of the events with which it is connected. Several fathers of the church indicated the true key to the narrative concerning the Magi when, in order to explain from what source those heathen astrologers could gather any knowledge of a messianic star, they put forth the conjecture that this knowledge might have been drawn from the prophecies of the heathen Bil'am, recorded in the Book of Numbers schmidt justly considers it a deficiency in the exposition of paulus that it takes no notice of the jewish expectation that a star would become visible at the appearance of the messiah and yet he adds this is the only thread to guide us to the true origin of this narrative the prophecy of bilam numbers chapter twenty four verse seventeen a star shall come out of jacob was the cause not indeed has the father supposed that magi actually recognized a newly kindled star as that of the messiah and hence journeyed to jerusalem but that legend represented a star to have appeared at the birth of jesus and to have been recognized by astrologers as the star of the messiah the prophecy attributed to bilam originally referred to some fortunate and victorious ruler of israel but it seems to have early received a messianic interpretation even if the translation in the targum of onkelos surget rex ex jacobo et messias ungetur rex esreale prove nothing because here the word onctus is synonymous with rex and might signify an ordinary king it is yet worthy of notice that according to the testimony of aben ezra and the passages cited by Wettstein and Schachten, many rabbins applied the prophecy to the Messiah. The name Bar Kokhba, or Son of a Star, assumed by a noted pseudo-Messiah under Hadrian, was chosen with reference to the messianic interpretation of Bilam's prophecy. It is true that the passage in question, taken in its original sense, does not speak of a real star, but merely compares to a star the future prince of Israel, and this is the interpretation given to it in the Targum above quoted. But the growing belief in astrology, according to which every important event was signalized by sidereal changes, soon caused the prophecy of Bil'am to be understood no longer figuratively, but literally as referring to a star which was to appear contemporaneously with the messiah we have various proofs that a belief in astrology was prevalent in the time of jesus the future greatness of mithridates was thought to be prognosticated by the appearance of a comet in the year in his birth and in that of his ascension to the throne and a comet observed shortly after the death of julius caesar was supposed to have a close relation to that event. These ideas were not without influence on the Jews. At least we find traces of them in Jewish writings of a later period, in which it is said 
that a remarkable star appeared at the birth of Abraham. When such ideas were afloat, it was easy to imagine that the birth of the Messiah must be announced by a star, especially as, according to the common interpretation of Bil'am's prophecy, a star was there made the symbol of the Messiah. It is certain that the Jewish mind affected this combination, for it is a rabbinical idea that, at the time of the Messiah's birth, a star will appear in the east and remain for a long time visible. The narrative of Matthew is allied to this simpler Jewish idea. The apocryphal descriptions of the star that announced the birth of Jesus to the extravagant fictions about the star said to have appeared in the time of Abraham. We may therefore state the opinion of Schmidt, recently approved by Fritzsche and de Wette, as the nearest approach to truth on the subject of Matthew's star in the East. In the time of Jesus, it was the general belief that stars were always the forerunners of great events. Hence, the Jews of that period thought that the birth of the Messiah would necessarily be announced by a star, and this supposition had a specific sanction in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. The early converted Jewish Christians could confirm their faith in Jesus and justify it in the eyes of others only by laboring to prove that in him were realized all the attributes lent to the Messiah by the Jewish notions of their age a proposition that might be urged the more inoffensively and with the less chance of refutation, the more remote lay the age of Jesus, and the more completely the history of his childhood was shrouded in darkness. Hence, it soon ceased to be a matter of doubt that the anticipated appearance of a star was really coincident with the birth of Jesus. This being once presupposed, it followed as a matter of course that the observers of this appearance were eastern magi first because none could better interpret the sign than astrologers and the east was supposed to be the native region of their science and secondly because it must have seemed fitting that the messianic star which had been seen by the spiritual eye of the ancient magus bilam should on its actual appearance be first recognized by the bodily eyes of later magi. This particular, however, as well as the journey of the magi into Judea, and their costly presence to the child, bear a relation to other passages in the Old Testament. In the description of the happier future, given in Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet foretells that, at that time, the most remote people and kings will come to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah, with offerings of gold and incense and all acceptable gifts. If, in this passage, the messianic times alone are spoken of while the Messiah himself is wanting, in Psalm 72 we read of a king who is to be feared as long as the sun and moon endure, in whose times the righteous shall flourish, and whom all nations shall call blessed. This king might easily be regarded as the Messiah, and the psalm says of him nearly in the words of Isaiah chapter 60, that foreign kings shall bring him gold and other presents. To this it may be added, that the pilgrimage of foreign people to Jerusalem is connected with a risen light, which might suggest the star of Bil'am. What was more natural, 
when on the one hand was presented bilaam's messianic star out of jacob for the observation of which magian astrologers were the best adapted on the other a light which was to arise on jerusalem and to which distant nations would come bringing gifts then to combine the two images and to say in consequence of the star which had risen over jerusalem astrologers came from a distant land with presents for the messiah whom the star announced but when the imagination once had possession of the star and of travellers attracted by it from a distance there was an inducement to make the star the immediate guide of their course and the torch to light them on their way this was a favourite idea of antiquity according to virgil a star stella facem ducens marked out the way of aeneas from the shores of troy to the west thrasybulus and timoleon were led by celestial fires and a star was said to have guided abraham on his way to moriah besides in the prophetic passage itself the heavenly light seems to be associated with the pilgrimage of the offerers as the guide of their course at all events the originally figurative language of the prophet would probably at a later period be understood literally in accordance with the rabbinical spirit of interpretation the magi are not conducted by the star directly to bethlehem where jesus was they first proceed to jerusalem one reason for this might be that the prophetic passage connects the risen light and the offerers with jerusalem but the chief reason lies in the fact that in jerusalem herod was to be found for what was better adapted to instigate herod to his murderous decree than the alarming tidings of the magi that they had seen the star of the great jewish king to represent a murderous decree as having been directed by herod against jesus was the interest of the primitive christian legend in all times legend has glorified the infancy of great men by persecutions and attempts on their life the greater the danger that hovered over them the higher seems their value the more unexpectedly their deliverance is wrought the more evident is the esteem in which they are held by heaven hence in the history of the childhood of cyrus in herodotus of romulus in livy and even later of augustus and suetonius we find this trait neither has the hebrew legend neglected to assign such a distinction to moses one point of analogy between the narrative in exodus chapter one verse two and that in matthew is that in both cases the murderous decree does not refer specially to the one dangerous child but generally to a certain class of children in the former to all newborn males and in the latter to all of and under the age of two years it is true that according to the narrative in exodus the murderous decree is determined on without any reference to moses of whose birth pharaoh is not supposed to have any presentiment and who is therefore only by accident implicated in its consequences but this representation did not sufficiently mark out moses as the object of hostile design to satisfy the spirit of hebrew tradition and by the time of josephus it had been so modified as to resemble more nearly the legends concerning cyrus and augustus and above all the narrative of matthew
According to the later legend, Pharaoh was incited to issue his murderous decree by a communication from his interpreters of sacred writings, who announced to him the birth of an infant destined to succour the Israelites and humble the Egyptians. The interpreters of the sacred writings here play the same part as the interpreters of dreams in Herodotus and the astrologers in Matthew. Legend was not content with thus signalizing the infancy of the lawgiver alone. It soon extended the same distinction to the great progenitor of the Israelitish nation, Abraham, whom it represented as being in peril of his life from the murderous attempt of a jealous tyrant immediately after his birth. Moses was opposed to Pharaoh as an enemy and oppressor. Abraham held the same position with respect to Nimrod. This monarch was forewarned by his sages, whose attention had been excited by a remarkable star, that Terah would have a son from whom a powerful nation would descend. Apprehensive of rivalry, Nimrod immediately issues a murderous command, which, however, Abraham happily escapes. What wonder, then, that, as the great progenitor and the lawgiver of the nation had there Nimrod and Pharaoh, a corresponding persecutor was found for the restorer of the nation, the Messiah, in the person of Herod. That this tyrant was said to have been apprised of the Messiah's birth by wise men, and to have laid snares against his life, from which, however, he happily escapes. The apocryphal legend, indeed, has introduced an imitation of this trait, after its own style, into the history of the forerunner. He, too, is endangered by Herod's decree. A mountain is miraculously cleft asunder to receive him and his mother, but his father, refusing to point out the boy's hiding place, is put to death. Jesus escapes from the hostile attempts of Herod by other means than those by which Moses, according to the Mosaic history, and Abraham, according to the Jewish legend, elude the decree issued against them, namely, by a flight out of his native land into Egypt. In the life of Moses also there occurs a flight into a foreign land, not, however, during his childhood, but after he had slain the Egyptian, when, fearing the vengeance of Pharaoh, he takes refuge in Midian. Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. That reference was made to this flight of the first Goel in that of the second, our text expressly shows. For the words, which it attributes to the angel, who encourages Joseph to return out of Egypt into Palestine, are those by which Moses is induced to return out of Midian into Egypt. The choice of Egypt as a place of refuge for Jesus may be explained in the simplest manner. The young Messiah could not, like Moses, flee out of Egypt. Hence, that his history might not be destitute of so significant a feature as a connection with Egypt, that ancient retreat of the patriarchs, the relation was reversed, and he was made to flee into Egypt, which, besides, from its vicinity, was the most appropriate asylum for a fugitive from Judea. The prophetic passage which the evangelist cites from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 out of Egypt have I called my son, is less available for the elucidation of this particular in our narrative. 
for the immediate proofs that the jews referred this passage to the messiah are very uncertain though if we compare such passages as psalm two verse seven in which the words thou art my son are interpreted of the messiah it cannot appear incredible that the expression my son in hosea was supposed to have a messianic signification against this mythical derivation of the narrative two objections have been recently urged first if the history of the star originated in bilaam's prophecy why it is asked does not matthew fond as he is of showing the fulfilment of old testament predictions in the life of jesus make the slightest allusion to that prophecy because it was not he who wove this history out of the materials furnished in the old testament he received it already fashioned from others who did not communicate to him its real origin for the very reason that many narratives were transmitted to him without their appropriate keys he sometimes tries false ones as in our narrative in relation to the bethlehem massacre he quotes under a total misconception of the passage jeremiah's image of rachel weeping for her children the other objection is this how could the communities of jewish christians whence this pretended mythos must have sprung ascribe so high an importance to the heathen as is implied in the star of the magi as if the prophets had not in such passages as we have quoted already ascribed to them this importance which in fact consists but in their rendering homage and submission to the messiah a relation that must be allowed to correspond with the ideas of the jewish christians not to speak of the particular conditions on which the heathen were to be admitted into the kingdom of the messiah we must therefore abide by the mythical interpretation of our narrative and content ourselves with gathering from it no particular fact in the life of jesus but only a new proof how strong was the impression of his messiahship left by jesus in the minds of his contemporaries since even the history of his childhood received a messianic form let us now revert to the narrative of luke chapter two so far as it runs parallel with that of matthew we have seen that the narrative of matthew does not allow us to presuppose that of luke as a series of prior incidents still less can the converse be true namely that the magi arrived before the shepherds it remains then to be asked whether the two narratives do not aim to represent the same fact though they have given it a different garb from the older orthodox opinion that the star in matthew was an angel it was an easy step to identify that apparition with the angel in luke and to suppose that the angels who appeared to the shepherds of bethlehem on the night of the birth of jesus were taken by the distant magi for a star vertical to judea so that both the accounts might be essentially correct of late only one of the evangelists has been supposed to give the true circumstances and luke has had the preference matthew's narrative being regarded as an embellished edition according to this opinion the angel clothed in heavenly brightness in luke became a star in the tradition recorded by matthew the ideas of angels and stars being confounded in the higher jewish theology 
the shepherds were exalted into royal magi kings being in antiquity called the shepherds of their people this derivation is too elaborate to be probable even were it true as it is here assumed that luke's narrative bears the stamp of historical credibility as however we conceive that we have proved the contrary and as consequently we have before us two equally unhistorical narratives there is no reason for preferring a forced and unnatural derivation of matthew's narrative from that of luke to the very simple derivation which may be traced through old testament passages and jewish notions these two descriptions of the introduction of jesus into the world are therefore two variations on the same theme composed however quite independently of each other end of section 36